Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. It's Monday, June 21st, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. John, what do you want to talk about today? Economic historian Adam Tooze has written a timeline showing the Biden administration's evolution towards a harder line on China. We'll discuss that. We'll also talk about BuzzFeed's plan to buy complex media and the digital media industry in general. It's a tough game, John. (laughs) That it is. What are the items you want to talk about? Well, supply chain disruptions might be causing faster than expected inflation. Surprise, surprise. We'll do some analysis. And since you are the Fox News Channel whisperer, I need to get your take on Ben Smith's latest column, which is all about Tucker Carlson and his leaky, sneaky ways. Well, we'll get there. Uh, (laughs) Let's start with a couple of science and tech headlines first, and then we'll get to the items. All right. First, Google says it won't allow cookies on its Chrome browser by early next year. Cookies are tiny bits of code that websites place on users' browsers. They allow advertisers to track what sites a user visits in order to serve them with targeted ads. Apple's Safari browser and Mozilla's Firefox have both already been blocking cookies for years. But since Chrome is used by about 70% of all Internet users, this change will have a much larger impact on advertisers. Google says its move to block cookies will give users more privacy online, and it seems like they're leaning toward a cookie replacement called Federated Learning of Cohorts, or Flock. Instead of allowing sites to track users via cookies on Chrome, the browser itself will track users. Then Google will use AI to categorize users into groups with other consumers that have similar preferences. Obviously, if you're worried about having a tech giant surveilling you, that doesn't quite solve the issue. It's also not clear that advertisers wouldn't be able to use information from Flock to create user activity files on individuals themselves. But regardless, this will likely give Google more control over both Internet users' data and the digital ad market itself. John, what is your takeaway from this announcement out of Google? You know, they're unbelievably annoying, right? You buy a pair of sneakers and the next thing you know, you get 8,000 sneaker ads coming at you. Um, So if Google's able to do this better, since we're going to lose our data anyway, right? Mm -hmm. Who who do you want to lose it to? Um, You want to lose it to the one that's going to be the most regulated and appears anyway that Google will be one of the most regulated. Eventually, it has to be. It has so much power. They're going to track us one way or another. That's right. So they're just not going to share with the advertisers. So they're just not going to share it with, you know, Omnicom and WPP right. and so on and so forth. And so yeah. maybe that's the best way to go. I don't know. You know, yep. concentration of data in the hands of one company is troubling. Obviously. Troubling. That's true. Yeah. It's a minefield. A minefield, exactly. Next, Cuba's Soberana 2 vaccine has shown 62% efficacy in late-stage trials when only two of the three doses are completed, qualifying the vaccine for approval from the World Health Organization and giving the world another tool to fight the pandemic. The results offer fresh hope for vaccinations even as different variants spread across the globe. The Soberana 2 is a relatively easy and cheap-to-produce protein-based vaccine. It uses the virus's spike protein to train the immune system to defend itself against the virus. John, are you surprised that Cuba has developed its own vaccine? I'm not, actually. Um, Cuba has an advanced biotech concentration, I guess you would call it, um, that that they have been, you know, they're sort of pioneers in certain types of life sciences. So Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised that they were able to, to build their own vaccine. It has, since 
I don't know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union and now since the collapse, essentially, of Venezuela, mm -hmm. Cuba has lost major sponsors, right? Major mm -hmm. sources of funds to keep the, the machinery uh, going, to keep the Castro regime operational. The fact that they've come up with a vaccine that may have, may be as good as any other vaccine is potentially a cash cow for yeah. them that, that could uh, sustain the current regime for many years to come. So it's a yeah. geopolitically, it's a major event. Although three three jabs, I mean, is that going to be logistically feasible for many for many countries? It sounds like, I mean, countries have had their hands full just, you know, rolling out two, right? Right. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, there's a whole world out there that doesn't have any vaccine mm -hmm. or right. or any infrastructure to get it done. So if, if Cuba shows up in Africa with, you know, millions and millions of doses, those nations will certainly be willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it makes sense for the rest of the world to pay for it. So mm -hmm. it's a big deal. Well, the more vaccines, the better, right? I mean, who can argue with that, really? Yeah, this is that this notion that COVID is behind us is mm -hmm. so crazy. Mm -hmm. When I read over and over and over again that it's in the rearview mirror, or that it's about to be in the rearview mirror, I'm thinking to myself, what planet are, are these mm -hmm. people on? We're looking at third waves all around the world. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying. So more vaccine is better is the short answer. True that. All right. Let's move on to the news items. BuzzFeed's CEO Jonah Peretti is taking the advice he gave to other digital media companies in 2018 and making BuzzFeed bigger. The Information has a story detailing his attempts to buy complex networks from Hearst and Verizon for about $300 million. This is after buying HuffPost in November of last year for an undisclosed amount. The ultimate goal is to merge with a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company, and go public. Generally speaking, the idea is that growth, either through acquisition or mergers, will give digital media companies more leverage in the wars for ad dollars. But as we already know, Facebook and Google get the lion's share of digital ad spending because they have the most eyeballs and the most data. It's not at all clear that getting bigger or going public will change that equation for BuzzFeed or any other digital company. John, what would you do if you were Jonah Peretti? Sell. <laughs> to who? You know, any traditional media company that thinks it needs a digital footprint, as they say. Are there any that want them? I mean, I thought they were, that was kind of out of fashion, right? I mean, Disney made a significant uh, multi-million dollar investment advice and had to write the whole thing down. Mm -hmm. uh, the Murdochs had a big investment advice and that sort of got written down. And then James Murdoch put money into Vice as an investor that sustained the company for the time being. But in the world of digital media, there's very big Facebook, mm -hmm. Amazon, Google, and there's specific, which is, you know, investableuniverse.com speaks to a very specific audience, yes. as does news items, as does, you know, any number of sports and cooking and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And those are viable business models. But being in the middle is, I think, doomed. You know, if you and I mm -hmm. are looking to expand our audience, our, our subscribers or readers, the very best way to do that without question, I mean, like orders of magnitude better than anything else, is to go to Facebook or Google and say, I want to talk to these audiences and 
they need to be this education level, this income level, blah, blah, blah. And Facebook just types that into a algorithm and boom, they hit exactly those targets. BuzzFeed can't do that. What does Complex Networks have that's worth $300 million to BuzzFeed? It adds scale and scope, right? They're trying to get big enough that they can parse the various pieces of their audience and be a younger, more focused way to reach those audiences to sell stuff to. But if you're head of ad spending at Omnicom or WPP or IPG, which are the three major advertising and marketing services companies in the United States and indeed in the world, you're under the gun. You have to deliver. Uh, your clients want to know exactly how the money they're giving you to spend is being spent and they measure how effective it is down to the last dollar, the most effective means of advertising ever conceived by mankind is Facebook, Google, and Amazon. All right. That's the verdict. That's the verdict. That's the verdict. <laughs> yeah. Thumbs down. It's like the Siskel and, Siskel and Ebert uh, <laughs> film review. Right? Yes. All right. So th this means I have to get your verdict on the other big media story. This one is a little more salacious. New York Times media reporter Ben Smith has a new article about Fox News host Tucker Carlson and his cozy relationship with the media elite he regularly derides on his show. According to Ben's reporting, Tucker, who has the highest rated cable news show in history, has been a great source for information about the Trump administration and the inner workings of Fox News. John, what should listeners make of this revelation? First thing is, this is the least surprising news of the week and perhaps the year. <laughs> Tucker has been, uh, has been sucking up to media journalists at all of the major newspapers. You know, he's been a great source for any number of reporters. Uh -huh. The way you know this is because every story that's written about him and his relationship to Fox basically ends up saying that Tucker is like the most important person at Fox. So it's hardly surprising that he's a source. What Trump dirt was traced back to Tucker Carlson as the source? The famous one was, I think it was March. Mm -hmm. Tucker informed everybody that would listen that he had gone down to Florida to meet with Trump and persuade Trump that the coronavirus was a huge deal <sighs> and that Trump should pay attention to it. Mm. So heroically, Tucker oh. went down and changed the mind of the president, et cetera. Do you think that's true? I mean, do you think that actually happened? Yeah, I think he went down. I'm not sure exactly what he, what he yeah. said to Trump. How rigorously do journalists fact check rumors that may be floated by Tucker Carlson? Or do you think to some extent they're blinded by the aura? I don't think that Tucker's aura is what <laughs> blinds them. I think the thing that blinds them is that, first of all, I think he's probably a very good source because mm -hmm. people are talking to him all the time because they want to be on his show. Yeah. So he picks up a lot of good stuff along the way. But it's also the press is overwhelmingly anti-Trump. And so if Tucker feeds them anti-Trump tidbits, I think it's usually too good to check, as they say. Does he talk to news items? Uh, no. No, not yet. No. <laughs> I have never talked to Tucker other than to say hello to him at uh, a couple of functions. Would you have him on news items or no? Uh, no. 
No? You hear that, Tucker? One journalist ain't having it. <laughs> he doesn't strike me as that interesting, right? I mean, no. if you know what the audience thinks, right, mm -hmm. then you know what Tucker thinks. And he's wedded to that, mm -hmm. right? He can't get crosswise with his audience because if you're in prime time and you're right there at 8 o'clock and you, you know, you sort of kick off the primetime schedule and you have 3 million viewers, you have to keep that audience. You can never show a downward slide. Now, obviously, events will make the number go up. Some events this summer, for instance, make the numbers go down a little bit. But you dare not cross the hardcore of your audience. Yeah. I've said this a hundred times, and it's absolutely the case, not just at Fox, but other cable networks. The audience programs the network, not the other way around. <sighs> the cynical truth. Yeah, maybe. The been there, done that view. <laughs> All right. We'll move on to the next item. But first, let's hear from our sponsors. Yeah. We'll be right back. Welcome back to News Items. The Institute of International Finance predicts that the pandemic-related supplier delays plaguing world trade could last into 2022 and contribute to inflation as businesses pass on shipping expenses to consumers. While the U.S. economy is emerging from pandemic restrictions, manufacturing and factory activity haven't kept pace with demand. There are still COVID outbreaks occurring across the globe, snarling supply chains, and over a year of shortages have led to weakened inventories. Last week, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said, and I quote, it turns out it's a heck of a lot easier to create demand than it is to you know, to bring supply back up to snuff. So, Rebecca, are we uh, are we still with Jay here? I mean, I'm sticking with Jay. You are. Look, they've said, what is it? They expect to raise interest rates by late 2023 sooner than they anticipated in March. So, I mean, they're keeping an eye on it. It's, I mean, it's really sort of the perfect storm, isn't it? It's interesting to follow what's going on in the world of shipping. I don't know if you, if you are following this. There's been another outbreak of COVID in Shenzhen. It's affected the Yantian port, which is a major uh, port of call for global shippers. I have a good friend who is, you know, follows supply chain developments, economic developments in the uh, in the shipping space, who told me that Maersk, you know, the, the Danish shipping yes, giant, right. it was out with a customer advisory out over the weekend that it had canceled 64 planned calls at the Yantian and Sheku ports due to delays of 16 days or more at these locations. Wow. And that a, uh, a cargo expert quoted by the same analyst, who's absolutely one of the smartest people in the industry that I know of, that container availability at these ports is not expected to increase in the coming weeks as more container lines cancel more calls. The price of shipping a 40-foot container to the U.S. is up 63% year-to-date. So, I mean, yeah. The journal piece that you link to in news items puts it down to four causes. I mean, it's labor shortages, it's shipping delays, it's higher commodity prices, it's high demand. How long is this going to last into 2022? After that, I don't know. It's a new regime for consumer prices. Given these supply chain disruptions, mm -hmm. given these troubles at ports and stuff, yeah. is there money getting invested in building, you know, new facilities, better logistics, you know, whatever? Is that going on or not yet? It's absolutely been going on. I mean, I think a lot of it is, you know, freight tech is a huge area of it. It has been since, you know, pre-pandemic because global freight markets, especially, I mean, in the U.S., but also elsewhere, have traditionally been very fragmented. There are informational asymmetries all over the freight 
supply chain. So many actors touch right. goods on their way from point A to point B. So there's been massive investment made in those areas since pre-pandemic. You know, and even now there's a tremendous interest in AI-powered logistics platforms to solve global supply issues. But those types of investments aren't really going to touch what's affecting right. the supply chain right now. Right. We're just in the middle of a fault line for global trade where, you know, a lot of vulnerabilities of the globalized economy have been laid bare. Yes. Of course it's inflationary. Is it long-lasting Carter-style inflation? I don't think so. Right. We're going to find out. I think initially there was an there was, you know, maybe an expectation that in order to preserve market share, Higher prices wouldn't necessarily be passed along to consumers and that companies would just kind of swallow this short-term spike in prices because these were bottlenecks that were going to be worked out very quickly. That is proven to be not the case for now. And so consumers are probably going to be looking at higher prices and possibly widespread product shortages as early as the fall, according to the journal piece. Yeah, it's going to take a long time to work itself out, right? It I mean, is. It's not, it's not something that's going to be done by no. September. All right. Well, let's move on. Where are we going next? Author and economic historian Adam Tooze has created a timeline that shows just how dramatically President Biden's China strategy has evolved. He published it on Substack over the weekend, and it's both long and very much worth the read. Biden was relatively unconcerned about China early on in his campaign. Twos shows how, as the election drew nearer, his stance toward China became more aggressive. By February of this year, he was saying that the U.S. must, quote, take on directly the challenges posed by our prosperity, security, and democratic values by our most serious competitor, China, unquote. But to me, the most interesting thing about this piece is how Biden's about face on China was seemingly motivated by advisors from a single strategic advisory firm. It's called West Exec, and it was co-founded by his secretary of state, Antony Blinken, Biden's pick for director of national intelligence, his press secretary, and an advisor who's helping lead the transition at the Pentagon all come from West Exec. Tell me about this, John. Is this an unusual state of affairs to see a strategic <laughs> advisory firm so deeply invested in a particular worldview on China, also having such extraordinary influence within the Biden cabinet. In my experience of covering politics, I don't I don't think I've ever seen one firm occupy as much real estate within an administration as mm -hmm. West Exec has. I don't think West Exec is as important politically okay. as to suggest. I think what happened with Biden is that in the summer of 2019, mm -hmm. it was like, hey, you know, the threat from China is overstated, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. That didn't poll particularly well. And so Biden politically just moved to a much, much firmer and tougher stance on China in reaction some would say proactive reaction mm -hmm. to the public opinion, right? Mm -hmm. That said, of course, behind everything, there's a private equity firm. That is right. Give us your take on the private equity firm behind West Exec. All right. Well, it's Pine Island Capital. That is a private equity firm that is associated by West Exec. They did raise $218 million for a new fund to finance investments in military and aerospace companies. An associate of that fund is Lloyd Austin, who is defense secretary in the Biden cabinet. So there is that connection as well. You know, the Biden's evolution on China is not that unusual for a Western politician of his 
political vintage. I mean, I listened to Tony Blair speak at the uh, Council on Foreign Relations right before lockdown, and he said during the Q&A that if someone had told him five years ago that the most pressing geopolitical threat to the West was coming from China, he would have asked you what you were smoking. Mm. Those were his words. So there was a sort of coming around, like a communal coming around among Western allies that cannot necessarily be laid at the feet of this particular strategic consultancy. But it is eye-opening that so many individuals from this... I mean, do you see this as something that can be... Of course, this is a rhetorical question because I think I probably know what the answer is, just as I'm saying these words, that will be used against Biden politically and that this will become Burisma version 2.0. I mean, is that... Is that what we're looking at here, that West exec is going to become the uh, core of a conspiracy theory against the Biden administration? Right. A strategic advisory firm based in Washington, D.C. called West exec that is funded by defense and aerospace firms, boasts multiple members of its founding class in the Biden cabinet. They are pushing Biden toward a more hawkish view on China that benefits their primary investors. Chu's, uh, I don't think, gave that, you know, line of inquiry nearly No, enough, no. But uh, of course, knowing <laughs> what we know about politics. But yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's fun about this story is you have the private equity firm, mm-hmm. you have the strategic consultancy, you know, yeah. and then you have the defense industry coming out a major winner in this shift in policy. And if ever there was the deep state, yes. this is it. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect issue for the Trump constituency. I don't think the midterm folks will know how to make it an issue, but Trump will definitely know how to make it an issue. Even if it seems self-serving, that doesn't make it unwise. There have been calls from multiple quarters for the U.S. government or defense quarters to become more active in areas like investment in mm-hmm. 5G, 5G applications for defense, partnerships regarding strategic energy, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think the facts are entirely... <laughs> Uh, relevant to the argument. What Trump does pretty effectively is he creates conspiracies that are aligned against the interests of his constituency and the country at large. Uh You know, you've got this in his telling, I'm sure, a shadowy strategic consulting firm in Washington that basically populates the Biden administration. They're in league with a private equity fund Mm -hmm. that's opaque and something bad must be happening here. He could also go the other way, which is to say Biden was a nitwit in 2019, but he came to the Trump position. And it's important that you stick with the Trump position. And I'm the Obviously, Trump is the guy to stick with the Trump position and not Biden because, you know, he was clueless in 2019 or something like that. So it could go either way, I suppose. So here's another question for you. Let's say the Biden administration does successfully co-opt a hawkish hardline view on China, thanks in whatever measure to the expertise at West Exec, which is now peopling his cabinet. What does that do to Trump's desires for a political resurgence on the scene? I think Trump's political fortunes are entirely tied to inflation. Really? Yeah. I think that Trump can win the Republican nomination over all comers, right? In Mm -hmm. part because there will be a lot of comers. Mm -hmm. So a divided field versus Trump. So I think if he runs, he'll be the nominee. And he's got some issues to run on. He's not going to win because of China. He's going to win if inflation does to Joe Biden 
what inflation did to Jimmy Carter, which is essentially mm-hmm. to, to tear apart his administration and collapse his political support. Okay, so this is an intriguing story. It came uh, straight out of Substack, which is also home to news items. So uh, for readers who would like a deeper dive into all of the topics that we have discussed today, check out John's newsletter, News Items, uh, on which this podcast is based. It's at newsitems.substack.com and go for the premium subscription. Rebecca's site, investableuniverse.com, covers the global market of things. And as we discussed earlier, nothing moves the global market of things like shipping. Check out her site. All right. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh. And we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with my interview with the writer and reporter Phoebe Eaton. We talk about El Chapo, and we'll be talking about other things as well.